Good morning, everyone. Nothing is more awesome than holding your granddaughter and listening to her sing to Jesus. That was so awesome. Thank you, Sawyer. Well, we're going to go continue on in Isaiah today. Um, I trust everyone had a wonderful, wonderful Christmas. I know I did, and I hope you did also. There's so much to be, be thankful for. I know I had a family member write that um, it's something that we need to, you know, he's hoping that in the next year we get back things that were taken away. And I didn't want to comment, but I'm sitting there thinking, it was like, you know, I had so much given to me over the year. I know, granted, I couldn't make a commute into work every day. I was forced to work from home most days and be around my wife. Um, so, yeah, that was a struggle. Um, I welcomed a, another granddaughter. Uh, hired some really talented people that the government will still, you know, write me and say, thank you so much, we can't believe we have this person. So I... You know, there's, if, you, if you take and look at the positive things, um, I know the funniest one is we had a guy that had been working out there for 30-plus like years, and he's getting to re ready to retire, but we had to go talk him off the ledge. His last day was like his third last day. He kept extending. And so they called me in, so I had to come in and talk to him. And he's like, you know, I just don't want to go. And his direct supervisor said, well, you know, you already have a house in Mesquite, Nevada, and your wife's already moved there, you know, and she's already sold your house. And the people that have bought it want to move in. You have to leave. And he's like, I know, but would you want to be around your wife 24-7? I looked at him and said, yes, <laughs> I really would. So you need to go enjoy. And he's like, ah. I said, look, we already have your replacement. He's already been there a month. You have to go. <laughs> so, and, and, you know, I, as much as everyone's saying, yeah, 2020 was a horrible year, things, th you know, can't wait till it goes, I think we should take some time and, and just be positive. But you know what time it is now? It's New Year's resolution time, right? So... I'll give you mine. The first one is I want to work through Grudem's new second edition of the Systematic Theology. If you've seen this book, you know that I am not going to get through it in a year. There is no way. Even if I work on a couple chapters a month, it will take over two years to get through that. But um, I really want to review it. His first book was so good and so powerful to the church to really understand theology and doctrine, it is really a great tool to use. And the thing is, it's, it's, it's like four inches thick, three, three plus inches thick. And you look at it and you're like, oh my goodness, I, I can't get through that. But they're really 57 bite-sized chapters. That's all they are, really good topics. The other thing I wanna do is, is weekly, weekly be reviewing the prayer list that I have. And I find that when you actually have one written down of everyone you're praying for, 
every topic you're praying for and you're going through that daily and then reviewing it weekly, you don't tend to miss praying for people or subjects and you're on top of it. And that's one of the things our community group is really going to be going through this year too. Also is I want to make sure I read through the Bible again this, this next year. And this is besides studying the Bible. They're two different things. There's reading the Bible, and then there's also studying. So last year, I went through Francis Chan's We Are the Church, his guide for getting through the Bible in the year, and it was good. I'm really going to have to, to work through these last week to, to finish Ezekiel and the Psalms, but it's, it's very easy to get that done. This next year, though, I'm going to use what the Gospel Coalition Group very good resources, the Gospel Coalition. And they recommended a plan, and I've heard of it before. It's by a man that lived in the 19th century. His name is Robert Murray McShane. And he has a plan, and I've, I've never used it before, but I'm going to do it this year. And the good thing is, it has you reading through four books at a time. And the thing is, you, you read about this guy, and he had passed away by the time he was 30 years old. But what a huge mark he left in the world. And we have his example of, of Bible reading to look to. And he made the Bible something that his whole life was based on. And then John tells us that the Word is God. So he proved in this 30 years of life his dedication to God. Now his plan in a year's time, you get through the Old Testament once, but you get through the Psalms and the New Testament twice. And, and the plus is, looking at this broken down, the plus is that most people get stalled out after they, they might get through Deuteronomy, but they will stall out in Leviticus. Most times, you talk to people. In this plan, you don't reach Leviticus until March. And it's only one of three bikes. So hopefully you have a good reputation going, a good repetition going by the time March comes. And, and the goal in all of this is to keep God in front of you, keeping his word and his requirements flowing through you. So pretty soon you won't realize that, hey, you know, it's been weeks since I picked up my Bible, opened my word. And then the goal above all others is to make the Bible, a daily part of your life. And pretty soon, what you'll see from that is, you know, you'll have picked up key verses that you want to memorize, and you'll be able to use as a tool. Um, you'll know God's Word better. And so when someone comes to you with a problem or a situation, you'll find yourself quoting to them something that you just read. It's just amazing how God does that. Something that's, that you've read that's really just speaks to you and you come up a situation and you're ready to present that. So, but not only is this just a great idea, it's something we're called to do. Um, and it's, it's really cool because when you, when you have this type of faith, you're doing this. I mean, I was telling Jim yesterday that, you know, I, I was on my way to, to go play fetch with a little white ball. And, uh, and there was a guy talking. I was just listening to the Golf Channel, and there was a guy talking. He was being interviewed. His name was Scott Simpson, 
And he was sharing that after he won this golf tournament, he shared his faith. He goes, you know, I've won bigger trophies and all this, but, you know, I just want to make sure everyone knows that the reason I'm here and my sole purpose is my faith in Christ. The announcer told him, I love this, the announcer said, I saw you do that, and I hated you for 10 years for saying that. He said, you won this major tournament, and you gave the glory to God. He goes, I hated you. And then he goes, now I'm a seeker. That was so cool. So I wrote him, see if I get word back. I, I wrote him a message saying, I want to hear more about this story. First of all, I want to hear the whole podcast, but I want to hear about this story. Do I think I'll get an answer? I don't think so. I mean, his Facebook hadn't been updated since 2012. So I have a couple of other avenues. And so I might have to go see him call. He's a, he's a golf coach in University of Hawaii. So I may need to go investigate this further, just so you want to know. And of course, I think Hawaii still has the 14-day quarantine once you arrive there. So it, I may be gone a month. <laughs> but we'll see. It's, it's all on this journey of faith. No, I don't have Twitter. Sorry. So, we want to make this a priority in 2021. In fact, when someone asks you, you know, why didn't you sign up for the gym this year? Or why aren't you working out since it's January and everyone else is there? Um, you can tell them, you know what? My pastors have required me to follow the Philippians 2, 12 through 16 plan. And that plan says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. So Paul is telling these Christians, continue to grow on this path of sanctification and to be lights. That's going to be a theme you're going to hear through this, is to be lights. So we're hearing don't grumble. In 2021, you need to spend more time in the Word and follow his commandments willingly because you are to be lights in this world and look at, we're going to look at that today so over a month ago al ended in chapter 8 of isaiah and that last verse in chapter 8 verse 22 sums it up it says and they will look to the earth but behold distress and darkness the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. 
Now, darkness is a picture of life without Christ in it, right? Um, and you might ask, who is the they in this section that they talk about? Well, we see they's all through the Bible. The one that really stuck out to me is when our group went through the book of Revelation together and just read it in one community group. Revelation 16.21 is, it talks about this, the they's. These they's see their friends or the people around them struck with 100-pound hailstones. Can you imagine the damage done to that person who gets hit with a 100-pound hailstone? A hard hat's not going to help them. They get pulverized. So these they's witness that, and they curse God. So I could possibly understand someone in their ignorance being upset and cursing whoever put it down, but it says these people knew God and were able to curse him because these people got hit with the hailstones. So we see the days in the Bible have very hard hearts, and, and we get a picture of that with Pharaoh, right? That God hardened Pharaoh's heart for a purpose. So we know that the days in the Bible love darkness. And we know darkness means no Christ. In fact, I liked last week when we sing that song, Offering, because it talked about Christ. It talks about there is no shadow in your presence. And that's Jesus. So God is the light. And God will be sending his light to the earth. But first, Isaiah had been stating that because of their di constant disobedience, there would be darkness. And he was talking to both the northern and the southern. And then we know from the time that God stopped speaking through the prophets, there'd be 400 years of silence before Jesus appeared. And so if you look from the book of Malachi to the book of Matthew, that is 400 years of no speaking to the people. But today, Isaiah is telling us in this chapter, 9 verses 1 through 7, he is telling us about a light is, that it will be to come. So let's pray. Dear God, we just want to tell you so much that we adore you. You are magnificent. You are someone to be worshipped. You are holy. We thank you for your word and what it means to us and how that we are to live as your lights here on earth. We can never tell you enough how much we praise you because we see from time past in the Old Testament to the time in the New Testament to the time that is to come in the book of Revelation. And we thank you so much for the vision that we can see and can understand. We thank you for the Holy Spirit you sent to be our comforter during this time. May we never take that for granted. And we love you so much. Amen. So the passage, Isaiah 9, 1 through 7, says, But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time, 
he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the later time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan and Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them the light shone. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, and they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden, and the staff for his shoulder, and the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. One thing to notice about this passage is the tense that's used. It's all in the past tense. So the future is written here as if it's something that's already taken place. And we see prophets like Isaiah are put in places where they see what will occur and they explain it to us as if it's already taken place. Because of this, Isaiah can talk about the darkness in 8.22 and then move to the light in 9.1. Now we know that this remnant of God that he was talking to would not see the light. But because of their belief in God, they believed and took him at the word that you know that this light is coming. To us, at this point of history, we can see the light. We are able to see the prophecy Isaiah spoke about and later see the results in the New Testament. So today this passage can be broken into two parts. And then we're going to take each of these two parts and answer three questions in them. So the first section will go from verses 1 to 3. The first section will go from verses 1 to 3. It's called the hope described the hope described so we're going to talk about what god does what his people enjoy and then what follows and then we're going to look at verses four through seven four through seven and that's going to be called the hope explained the hope explained and we're going to go over those same three questions there. What God does, what his people enjoy, and what follows. 
And all the actions we're going to see, all the things that take place, will take place because of God in His power. There's nothing that we bring in this section. Because the examples we're going to see that's referenced in this passage is the Exodus and then the, the victory that Gideon had over the Midians. And the good news in this passage, there's going to be a better ending. Because the Exodus, while a demonstration of the powerful acts of God in providing redemption, in overthrowing their captive, the, the people that were captured, and providing a way out of Egypt for God's people, the people, shortly after being freed, demonstrate a very feeble response to everything God gave them. And then in Gideon, in that example, we see in verse 4 in this passage, it's another case of God providing a miraculous victory for the people. Miraculous. But it soon gave way to the people worshiping the created. And then in chapter 9, we read of full corruption in judges of the people. But the good news, the good news is, in the day of great hope, the response of the people in regards to the mighty acts of God will be wonderful. We see when the light shines, verse 2 tells us they will see it. When joy is increased in verse 3, they're going to rejoice. When they enter in the perfect kingdom of peace under the perfect king, they will celebrate. So what we see in this passage is pictures of the Messiah that will come to be. It is the king that is born that we see in Matthew 2.2. 2. And that king is divine. Isaiah's vision he is sharing with us is from the devastation of the northern kingdom. And that took place around 733. This passage and the promise that came after Judah heard about the devastation of their relatives by the Assyrians and their relatives weren't just defeated, they were completely packed up and hauled away. So this land would never more look like it did when God gave it to them. And these people in the south, although the north, they didn't have the greatest relationship, they were still relatives, they still had family there. So to hear what happened would cause them to turn to this prophet Isaiah for comfort and for answers. And that's what he did. And Isaiah would reply here that where darkness would follow, have faith. A light would shine and his glory will be fulfilled. So let's go into the first section, the hope described, what God does. Verse 1, verse 1 says, But there will be no gloom for who who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought in contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the later time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan and Galilee of the nations. So it talks about no gloom for her that was in anguish. This is actually a stated fact 
It is not a prediction. And gloom is the same word that we see in 822, talking about the, the word that's also used for fearful. So people of faith must see what happened and hear from God. What took place up north is, while it's real, it's not the final reality for this people. They, Israel, the northern kingdom, if you remember, they had been warned over and over again about obedience, and they never took it serious. So now God's people must choose their response. Look to the darkness of what occurred and believe, you know what, God's forgotten us. Or they need to look to the light and remember that over and over again, God has always remembered his people, forgiven them, and provided a path forward. Isaiah telling him, is telling him that hope is a present reality and part of the now for them. The areas mentioned, Zebulun and Naphtali, they were the first to fall to the Assyrians. It's like I said before, their people were actually picked up and deported to the land. The land became resettled with different people that were captive, and they formed three Assyrian provinces. But we see in chapter, in verse 1, it says, In later times, he has made a glorious way to the sea, the land beyond Jordan, Galilee of the nations. So the three providences that Assyria set up will be treated with honor, and, is all, and this is the only mention anywhere in the Bible of Galilee as Galilee of the nations. There's a new idea introduced in this hope. That is, when the new hope comes on the scene, when Christ comes, it's telling us that us, the Gentiles, will be involved in this. This is substantial because, like I said, there's been no mention anywhere of Galilee that ever bothered to bring up the Gentiles, except right here, talking about Christ. This shows that the coming Messiah is for the world. So Isaiah was given the opportunity here to introduce the fact that not only is hope is coming, this Messiah, but this hope would be for all peoples. So verse 2, what his people what his people will enjoy. Now we look at what his people will enjoy. That is light and joy. It says the light and joy that's seen in verses 2 and 3, they are related to a threefold explanation that we will see in verses four through six. And all three verses in four and six begin with the word four. So verse four discusses the liberation for the people. Verse five discusses entering into the fruits of victory past. And six discusses the birth of the child. So Isaiah turns from lands transformed by divine blessing to people now that will be entering 
into the light of God's favor. The term walked here means living out your lives. So we see the remnant of God caught up in laboring during this national calamity and they were walking in darkness. They were enduring the hiding of the Lord's face as we saw back in chapter 8, verse 17. And his face was hidden, but this remnant was not cursing him. They had the discipled expectations of his faith. So even though dwelling in a land so sinful is referred to as dark, and verse 2 described it as a deep darkness, they were still shown hope, and they were promised that a great light will shine. So God's people will see a great darkness turn to light, and that is what they're going to get to enjoy. Verse 3, what follows? It says, you have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy, they rejoice before you as joy at the harvest, and they are glad when they divide the spoil. So here's the new situation between God and his people. He has increased their joy, and they rejoice before him. We see here both the harvest and the victory are defined gifts. Harvest belongs to the realm of nature, and we see most of our human celebrations are based on a great harvest coming in, in older times. And then the plunder is a realm of history. The point of this prophecy is about a people belonging to the Messiah and promising us delivery from circumstances and from people. And we're going to see from the example given to us in verse 4 is a people entering into the fruits of victory that they have done nothing at all to win. So they are a benefit, they get a benefit or a gift from a greater power. Section 2 talks about the hope explained. This covers verses 4 through 7. And what God does, verse 4, God's act of deliverance, for the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his impressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. So verse 4 gives us two historical references. One is the Exodus, and the second is the victory of the Midianites that we see in the book of Judges. The Exodus offers a view of the child coming as a deliverer to God's people. We see that in Exodus 3, verses 7 and 8. It says, Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their suffering, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians to, and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hivites, the Amorites, the Pezerites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And God also used the defeat of the Midians in Judges 6, 8, 
And why did he do that? Gideon was used to be a deliverer of Asher, Zebulon, and Naphtali. Back what we see what happened in the beginning of this passage. So Judges 6.35 says, And he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh, and they, were, and they too were called to come out and follow him. And he sent messengers to Asher, Zebulon, and Naphtali, and they went up to meet him. And this act of the exodus and the victory over the Midians, these are great examples of victories, of victories that man had no part in. These two victories belong to God alone. And we see in the victory of Midian, we see at that point there was a sudden burst of light as these few hundred men broke their jars open and blew the trumpet and held their torches high. And God threw that army into such a deep confusion that they couldn't see below them. They were covered in darkness. So they just took their swords and cut their way through, not even realizing they were battling their own countrymen. Also, the three acts of suffering that we went over in this verse are broken during the deliverance of the Messiah. So when Messiah comes, the yoke that burdens is uh, the burden of suffering that has actually endured for people periods of time. The bar across the shoulder could be better explained is a staff or a stick that's laid on the back constantly to demand performance. And the rod of the impressor, this means suffering from personal hostility, like from a taskmaster. And once we are delivered from the Messiah, all this goes away, and we are delivered. Verse 5, what the people will enjoy. Verse 5 says, for every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. So the conquest we see in verses 3 and 4 is brought to a climax with the final act of dealing with the spoils of war. So in verse 4, we see liberation. And in verse 5, the people enter freely into the fruits of victory, of the Lord's victory. And we see in Zechariah 9.10, we do nothing in this battle. It belongs to the Lord. Zechariah 9.10 says, I will cut off every chariot from Ephraim, and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. We see in this verse, in this verse a picture of God's people entering a battlefield that they took no part in. They enter not to fight, but they enter to claim the spoils. Because of God's power, his people will take the tools used against them. An example here is like the boots, and they will burn them. Because peace has now come, and there is no longer any use for these tools of war. So the overall picture we get from this verse is the breaking of the alien power which has gripped God's people.
Now verses 6 and 7 goes over what follows. The king and his rule. And 6 and 7 say, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. I got to speak on Advent during verse 6 about three weeks ago. And I want to point out again, the key thing to note here is the emphasis does not fall on what the child will do. Instead, it falls on the fact that he is born. The child will be born as a son, and now gives us a picture of his maleness and that he belongs to God's royal line. Government used here and in verse 7 means the same thing. It means princely or executive. And it relates to the child's authority. Shoulders used here, it's, it's no mistake because it's used earlier to show like the rod across our shoulders. Now it's saying the shoulders here emphasize Christ's role as our ruler. So the Messiah's people, us, we will be released from burdens as he shoulders all the responsibility. And the name he will be called? One writer in regards to this, this part in verse 6 says that his name will be called, noted a custom among the people that lived around Israel. And, and their custom, their habit of giving throne names. So basically a king had a name that described the intent of his rule. And we look at Solomon. When Solomon was given a name, it meant peace. And that was like the longest peace Israel had had. So we have these throne names that are given to us for Jesus. And so the coming Messiah will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. These are his throne names. They describe the intent of his rule. So we look at this, and wonderful here means supernatural. So we will have a supernatural counselor who will give us God's wisdom. Mighty God comes from the earlier prophecy of the child Isaiah talked about, Emmanuel, God with us. And that's where we see the L in it. L means God. So we see this mighty God, and it refers to a mighty warrior. An everlasting father, it's, it's not a name usually associated, the term father, with an Old Testament king. But in this case, it points to God, and we see his concern for the helpless. We see that in Psalm 68, verses 5 and 6. It says, Father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God 
in his holy habitation. God settles the solitary in a home and he leads the prisoners to prosperity, but the rebellious lived in a parched land. So we're gonna have this divine father that is eternal. And since this father is eternal, it can only refer to God. Prince of Peace, the term Prince of Peace, we saw as an example, as the human ruler, and that brought a, and in their culture, that would have meant two people. They saw a period of peace under the judge Gideon and under the king Solomon. But Jesus, when he comes, will bring eternal peace. And what will that mean? Imagine this. We will live at a time where we will experience freedom from any type of anxiety, freedom from worry, basically anything that's being diagnosed that we suffer from now, either, either diagnosed or undiagnosed, that leaves people to live in a life of stress, all that's going away. All that's going away. It will no longer exist. We will be at one with him and he will be at one with us and that will be to our benefit. Verse 7. The quality that Jesus brings to us and brings to the world will never be diminished. They will never suffer or they will never lose their effectiveness due to a lack of care with him as our leader. And the focal point here is the kingdom is David's throne. And what we saw earlier is what King Ahaz earlier in Isaiah refused to trust, this will all be wonderfully fulfilled. The light of this is what we see is that this son must mean the son of David and the son will be on the throne forever and he will uphold it with justice and righteousness forever. So I do not know how many of the Israelites saw encouragement when their northern relatives were being marched out um, of their God-given lands never to return and never know the land as it was before. Or later, when they were marched out due to their disobedience. But we do know that a remnant in captivity stayed strong. They stayed strong in Christ during that hard times. And they continued to follow God when the others, the days we talked about earlier, um, followed a different religion and cursed God. And we see their strength, this remnant that held on. We see it in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah when they were released by the ruler that Isaiah names later that we'll see, Cyrus. And they go back and they rebuild Jerusalem. And God promises us better. He promises us a better future when his son comes again. And we see that in Psalm 89.4. Psalm 89.4, God talking to his servant David. I will establish your offspring forever 
and build your throne for all generations. So knowing the Bible and knowing his promise to us, that will allow us to stay strong and allow us to trust his word. And we do that by keeping his word ever before us. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you so much for these words of encouragement, these words of just great promise to us that no matter what's going on horizontally in our lives, that we are to look to you vertically and look to that light and just continue to grow in it. Father, may we never take you for granted. May we never take your Holy Spirit for granted. May we continue to grow in this life. And may we dedicate this next year, month by month, day by day, to grow in your word and grow in the knowledge of you. Thank you so much for your prophets. Thank you so much for the words that speak to us and encourage us, even in our darkest trials. Amen.